This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we are proud to announce our Insider Town Hall series, speaking with key decision makers in Congress and the state legislature about issues Indivisibles care about. In this discussion about civil rights, we focus in on police reform and gun safety with three distinguished guests. Senator Jamie Peterson is the chair of the Senate Law and Justice Committee. Both Representative Milan Tai and Representative Deborah Entenman are members of the House Policing Policy Leadership Team, and Representative Tai is the vice chair of the House Civil Rights and Justice Committee, and Representative Entenman is the chair of the Black Members Caucus. I do hope that you will join us for this important conversation, which was recorded on the evening of Thursday, December 4th. And so we are extremely excited about tonight's panel. Uh, we are, this is our second installment in the Legislative Insider Town Hall series. So what we're doing now is focusing on key issues that indivisibles and progressives care about here in Washington. As we know, Democrats will continue to have sizable majorities in both chambers of the legislature. And this means we have a renewed opportunity to push for some very important legislation. So we're going to be talking with committee and caucus members in both House and Senate chambers about these key issues in order to learn what their priorities are, uh, hear what they feel is possible to get accomplished in the new session, and then ideally we can have a discussion about how we as activists and progressives can work together with them to achieve uh, common goals. So tonight we are discussing issues around civil rights and social justice. We are very, very grateful to have three distinguished guests. Representative Milan Tai is the vice chair of the House Civil Rights and Judiciary Committee. She is a member of the Members of Color Caucus. She is also a member of the House Policing Policy Leadership Team. She represents the 41st LD. Uh, Representative Tai, welcome to you. Thank you, Stefan. Um, thank you for uh, giving me an opportunity to be here and have conversations with uh, our near neighbors and our far neighbors. Well, we're so happy to have you here, and I love your background, and it's making me think of spring. Uh, Representative Deborah Entenman is also with us. She is a member of the House uh, Policing Policy Leadership Team as well, and she is chair of the Black Member Caucus. She represents the 47th LD. Uh, Representative Entenman, welcome to you. Thank you. I appreciate being invited. Well, we're so happy to have you with us. And Senator Jamie Peterson is the chair of the Law and Justice Committee, and he has served as senator from the 43rd LD since 2013. So uh, welcome to you all. Uh, first and foremost, uh, Reps Ty and Entman, congratulations on your reelection. And before we start, uh, Representative Ty, it was so wonderful to see you representing our state at the Democratic National Convention roll call this year. You did us so proud. Thank you for doing that. It, it certainly was my honor. Um, and uh, I really have to share it's not only um, my privilege to do so, representing our beautiful Washington state and our wonderful people, Washingtonian, and receiving message uh, from many of my friends. Um, I also get to receive message from Vietnamese American across this beautiful country. Um, for the first time, they heard Vietnamese language spoken at a national uh Democratic uh, conventions. And that is really key to what it meant to be a Democrat to me. 
And also well, what thank it, you for that. Yeah, and also I think what it means to be American. Uh, I was particularly moved when you were speaking in, in Vietnamese. So about tonight's program, we're going to be speaking broadly about civil rights and social justice, but I want to spend the bulk of our time on police reform, uh, in large part because I know that this is a big legislative priority this year, but also it's we've gotten a lot of questions about this from audience members and each of you is doing work on this front. So, uh, Representative Enneman, maybe just as a way of centering this discussion, communities of color have known all too well about the need for police reform in this country. But I'm wondering, are you seeing changes in how the public has been responding to events like the George Floyd murder that indicate that a plurality of white people are now finally recognizing the need for police reform in this country? Well, there have been a number of uh, steps that members of the white community have taken to show that they are willing to listen, that they are finally um, having an understanding of what is really going on in this country. Um, I think sometimes we like to believe that if we call ourselves progressive, we are anti-racist, and that is not the same as not being racist. There is an action that you must do to be anti-racist and to undo institutionalized racism in this country. And so when we talk about legislation that we'd like to move forward, when we talk about our response to COVID, when we look at food insecurity and education and um, actually home ownership, those are all areas where I think people are trying to make positive steps forward. It is sometimes difficult because I think for some people, it is very difficult to admit that although they claim to not be racist, they weren't anti-racist because anti-racist is an intention and actions that you must take to change a system that is unfair. Yeah, I I completely agree. Uh, And I I think, you know, taking the action toward Anti-racism is something that is, is sort of a new concept to a lot of us, and, and we're, we're beginning to look at that in earnest. Uh, Senator Peterson, I know that you wrote very eloquently in your newsletter about your realization of the problem of racism in policing. And you know, I want to talk specific legislation with all of you in just a moment. But, um, Senator, I'll just ask you, do you feel like this is a moment, given everything that Representative Enneman has just said, where there may be the political will and or momentum to actually do police reform in this session? I do. I think that we have really crossed a point where that terrible video of the murder of George Floyd um, seared into the consciousness of a lot of people who had been uh, passively sympathetic, but not actively engaged uh, in undoing centuries of injustice. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just give you an example. I have, I've been engaged for many years in uh, work to abolish the death penalty, which I think is a, a great shame and embarrassment on us that in 2020, we still have the death penalty. And I don't mean to um, understate the importance of that work, but there was sort of a light bulb moment for me when I thought about the fact that in, you know, in the 30 years or so since it was, the death penalty was reinstated in our state, there have been maybe a handful of people who have actually been executed by the state, whereas every few months uh, we have police without any due process uh, executing people uh, in our state, largely black and brown people. 
And uh, that's a that's a very disturbing set of facts to have to confront and then think about what it what is your responsibility to do something about trying to change that trajectory and trying to uh, make sure that people are protected from a system that has not been protecting them. So yeah, I mean, I, I guess just in, in in short, I will say I um, I have not in my 14 years uh, in the legislature seen an issue where there is as broad engagement in from both the House Democrats and the Senate Democrats, um, really regular planning conversations between the two chambers about a pretty comprehensive sweep of reforms um, across multiple committees, but concentrated in House Public Safety and Senate Law and Justice. Um, and uh, really a, a strong intention, I think from both caucuses to make sure that in a session where our agenda is going to have to be quite limited, this is among the top priorities. Th- that is wonderful news uh, to hear. And, you know, as you mentioned, there is a package of bills that I know that both you uh, have proposed and, and I know that the uh, the House Policing Policy Leadership Team has proposed. And so because there is quite a bit, I, I think what I'd like to do, if you'll in- all indulge me, is is break this down into three different areas where we can have our discussion. So transparency, issues of transparency, issues of accountability, and use of deadly force. Um, uh, Representative Eneman and Representative Ty, you're both part of the policing policy leadership team, and that was established by uh, the House Public Safety Committee Chair Roger Goodman. So let's start there. Um, Representative Eneman, how would the legislation that is being proposed by the policing, uh, the, the policing policy leadership team address uh, the issues of transparency of police activity? I know that Representative Lovick is bringing information around data collection, not just when we have the use of deadly force, but also when we have um, interactions with police and how they interact with community. Uh, Representative Jesse Johnson is working on legislation so that we have accountability teams in each of our cities, police accountability teams, so that we, so the community has an ongoing back and forth um, relationships with police departments so they know exactly what the police department is doing um, in different communities. Um, when I think about um, policing and when I think about public safety, I think all of us have the goal is that it doesn't matter where you live, it shouldn't matter where you live, and it shouldn't matter what you look like. We should think of law enforcement officers as people who provide public safety. And if that is not what they're doing, then they need to do something else. And if they are taking the lives of black and brown people and poor white people, that is not their job. That is why we have a criminal justice system and we should let that system play out. And if I if I could add to uh, what Representative Entman has mentioned, we are not going to forget about people who uh, live with a mental health condition. Um, those are the many cases being presented to us and um, and, 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 and making sure that that particular population is, is also in our, in our heart and our mind when we are working on these important legislation. 
Absolutely agreed. And uh, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, Senator Peterson, I know that you have several bills on uh, police transparency, uh, say requiring the use of body cameras statewide, uh, prohibiting law enforcement officers from covering their badge numbers while on duty. You also have a proposal for requiring state collection of data on police use of force. If I may ask, in what ways is the state currently deficient in collecting that data? I don't think that there is any statewide collection of that data data at this point. Uh, There was a proposal last session uh, that uh, Representative Lovick brought that would have required collection of data about the use of deadly force. Uh, That ran into trouble in the Senate way, passed out of my committee and then ran into trouble in the Senate Ways and Means Committee because it would have had the Washington Association of Sheriffs and Police Chiefs responsible for collecting the data. And there was substantial concern in my caucus about having the foxes guard the hen house. I don't know, is that the right analogy? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that proposal has been reworked uh, for this session. Uh, Representative Lovick and uh, Senator Hasegawa, who have been the leads on that, have worked with the Attorney General. And I think the revised proposal calls for that data to be collected by Washington State University. And that's the, we had reference earlier to the uh, broader collection, not just of use of deadly force data, but I think Representative Veneman uh, mentioned that the proposal now will collect data about all interactions uh, between law enforcement and community members. And that broader sweep should give us a much better picture of what's happening. You know, and to your, to your question earlier to Representative Veneman, I guess my reaction would be that once people are aware, I mean, I think it, both, it will both be the case that law enforcement, if they know that this data is going to be reported and very transparent, that will change their behavior toward the community, number one. And number two, if people who have previously not paid attention or sat on the sidelines are aware of the kinds of interactions that are going on uh, between law enforcement and, and communities of color in particular, uh, I think that will help spur the Uh, demand for change in the way that those interactions happen. So I think there are multiple benefits from transparency in this area. And I hope that there is that bang on effect that that you talk about. Um, Circling back, because uh, Representative Enneman, you mentioned a police accountability, and many consider this to be one of the biggest problems in law enforcement is the lack of accountability. Uh, Representative Ty, I want to bring you in to talk about something that you're introducing called the Peace Officer Accountability Act. And this is related to Keep Washington Working, which passed in 2019. And this is designed to restrict ways that law enforcement agencies can uh, participate in the enforcement of federal immigration laws. Tell us a little bit about what your bill would do. Well, thank you. Um, for that. Um, Well, Peace Officer uh, Accountability Act um, aims to um, ensure um, that there's pathway for Washingtonians who were being victim of um, police um, conducting um, unlawfully uh, being able to, um, to receive justice. Um, we uh, ensure that the civil um, cause of actions is available to uh, the people who live in Washington state. It, um, uh, in some form and shape, um, mirror Colorado um, legislations that has passed. 
um, as the first uh, state in our union uh, when we um, address the, uh, the doctrine of uh, qualified immunity. Um, however, as you know, qualified immunity is a federal uh, doctrine and in our state we have, um, uh, we have uh, areas that we could uh, provide uh, means for, for victims to, to, uh, to get the justice um, out of this corrupted system. Um, you mentioned uh, Keep Washington Working. Mm -hmm. um, Keep Washington Working is going to be uh, part of this um, part of this piece of legislation. However, this legislation is not specific to that. Um, as we know, Keep Washington Working uh, was passed without any accountability, without a means. Um, if uh, if sheriff, if police officers, if law enforcement officers who uh, do not follow the law, um, which in another word, um, commit an unlaw an unlawful uh, act uh, by not following the laws when their job, their duty is to enforce the law, uh, then uh, this legislation um, will include uh, uh, those who who choose not to follow the laws in Washington State. So there is an enforcement mechanism to it. This this, this is an enforcement mechanism for for those who number one as far as their conduct and number two as far as them uh, not following the laws uh, being presented um, in the book. You mentioned qualified immunity, and I, I would like to spend just a moment on that. So qualified immunity, um, it essentially means that an officer cannot be held uh, personally liable for using excessive, excessive force if he or she did not violate, quote, clearly established law. And this is actually... Uh, been a problem in the prosecution of police officers who have committed crimes on camera. Uh, I, and I'm wondering, talk a little bit about more, a little more if you could, about how your bill addresses this and how it could potentially have larger ramifications. Well, um, we are still working to finalize the language of the of the legislation itself. And so I'm, I'm going to ask us to give us a little more room and time as far as that. Um, a lot of it is because we want to make sure that um, we as the government um, will follow and protect and uphold our constitution. And that is first and foremost. And we make sure that those language um, and, and considerations are in place. Uh, at the same time, um, I want to, you know, as, as you mentioned, Stephen, is that um, um, the police officers are the people who are following orders. And so um, the liability is gonna be on um, agencies and employ, employ those who employed uh, and really those who establishing procedures and policies uh, that would put our police officers and our law enforcement in the place where uh, they have to act in some case um, according to what expecting of them. I would like to shift and talk about an impediment that has come up quite a bit recently, which is police unions. And I think this may apply to a lot of what has been proposed tonight. Um, I was police unions wield an extraordinary amount of power uh, in this state. I was listening to a committee meeting uh, recently and Representative John Lovick, who himself is law enforcement, uh, said that a lot of these reforms don't get passed historically because of unions. 
basically standing in the way. Um, Representative Eneman, I would love your thoughts on this. Any thoughts on how we might negotiate, or, or rather not we, but you as, as legislators, how you might negotiate around that? Well, I first want to say that I am from a union family. I have members of my family who are police officers in other states, and I have members of my family who are teachers, and so they are part of a union. But I want to say, and I want to make this clear, the work that we are trying to do to hold police accountable, to not allow them to use their qualified immunity for these extrajudicial killings, that is what's happening in the streets right now, is not an anti-union move. We often hear right now that they are, there are many unions who are concerned that if we go after arbitration, that it is a slippery slope that will then lead to us moving towards ending arbitration or modifying arbitration in other areas. But I say that the police union is a different union. It is a, in a, has a special circumstance and it's because they are trained, they carry guns and they kill people. And so I don't look at the teachers union or SEIU the same way I look at the police unions. And so I think that that is a false equivalency and that argument will not stand. Um, and so, and I also believe that many of these, this discussion is coming from, not from the rank and file that are in unions, but from labor leaders who are concerned about their power and their influence in community. So what I would say is it is not a slippery slope. They don't all, everybody in a union doesn't carry a gun and the police need to be held accountable. You know, uh, Senator Peterson, you and I spoke about this uh, a little bit during our, our preparation for uh, this evening's event. And I, I would love for you to kind of reiterate some of your thoughts, uh, kind of dovetailing on what Rep- Representative Eneman was just saying. Well, um, this is a this is a complicated area. I, I agree wholeheartedly with Representative Eneman that the job of policing is in some ways fundamentally different. And there are absolutely things that I think the police unions in the past have successfully argued are part of working conditions for them and therefore should be subject to bargaining. For example, whether um, whether a police officer can use a, a neck restraint uh, on someone. And, you know, frankly, that should not be subject to bargaining. Um, there's no reason for effective policing that anyone ought to be using a neck restraint. On the other hand, I guess, let me say that there are, uh, police officers are workers, right? And we as a party are for workers and want protections for workers against the sometimes arbitrary actions of their uh, bosses, right? So, So there is a real, there is a real something there that's an anxiety for the line law enforcement officers about arbitrary, capricious, discriminatory decisions made by uh, by police chiefs or sheriffs, and um, and it's it, it is an issue that we will need to need to unpack. I do like the way that you framed the question to begin with, though, because I think that there are a number of the reforms that we're talking about that essentially finesse the whole uh, issue of the uh, the employer-employee relationship between police departments and the officers. 
So for example, Representative Johnson's bill, which talks about all sorts of tactics that we think that police officers should not be employing, just taking that off the table uh, under state law as something that, that would be available to legally to police officers uh, is an important set of questions that we can just remove from that discussion uh, and say that it doesn't have to do with any labor management uh, agreement. Similarly, um, Representative Johnson and the Coalition for Police Accountability are working hard on uh, a bill to, to change our language around use of force in the state and establish a statewide standard. And once we've established a statewide standard in state law, that can't be bargained away or bargained differently at the state level either. So I think there are absolute, and we'll talk a little bit later, I think about the decertification proposal, but um, there are absolutely ways that without getting into issues that might have broader concerns for the labor community, uh, we can make significant changes that will protect uh, black and brown people from, uh, un from biased and brutal policing. I do very much want to talk about decertification, and I also simultaneously want to come back to some of the tactics that you were talking about in deadly force. Uh, but let's start with decertification, because this is something that I don't think a lot of people are familiar with. Um, and you have a measure that would strengthen what is called the decertification process. Uh, can you just enlighten us? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, sure. This is uh, kind of my forte in the legislature, finding complicated, long uh dry things that people uh, that put people to sleep. Um, so the in our state, similar to what we do with nurses and teachers and a whole set of other uh, professions, we have a criminal justice training commission that certify, trains and then certifies all people who work as uh, professional law enforcement and corrections personnel as well. And uh, the, the sort of converse of that is that they have the theoretical ability to decertify officers uh, who don't meet state standards anymore. The problem with the system that we have is that it's used only very rarely because a decertification right now can happen only after a disciplinary process has worked its way out entirely at the local level and all appeals have been exhausted. Uh, and by the way, if the officer sees the writing on the wall and resigns in lieu of discipline, then the Criminal Justice Training Commission has no authority uh, to take any action against that officer's certification. And the officer can walk right down the street from Rent to, uh, Renton to Kent or Auburn and get a job at another, uh, at another agency. And it's not always clear that those agencies look at or care about uh, the previous records of those officers. So the the proposal which we're calling state oversight and accountability would change the makeup of the Criminal Justice Training Commission so that it is majority community led. It would uh, enlarge both the set of conduct that could lead to decertification of officers and also uh, broaden the jurisdiction of the commission to take action on a certification so that it could do it on its own initiative or on a complaint from any member of the public uh, about a particular officer's uh, actions or pattern of, pattern of actions in law enforcement. Um, and then it, it provides transparency about both that process and about the whole range of complaints that are brought against law enforcement officers so that the public will have a better idea of what 
kinds of complaints are out there. And I think if there's one thing that we've learned from uh, the bad interactions, for example, in George Floyd's case, is that there were warning signs. Officers who behaved badly, um, they're few in number relatively, but they're repeat offenders often. And they're often, before you have a killing, there's been a whole pattern of abusive behavior that if it were uh, stopped in time could really save lives. So uh, I guess I, I think of the, the state accountability and oversight um, bill as an enforcement, a statewide enforcement mechanism for all of the other uh, good work that folks are doing, whether it's Senator Dingra's bill about requiring officers to who witness use of excessive force to intervene uh, in and try to stop uh, that excessive force, whether it's Representative Johnson's bill uh, about prohibition of neck restraints or prohibition of shooting at moving vehicles. Um, if for all of these things, the decertification process can be a way that respecting the labor rights uh, of the officers involved can take a look at whether they deserve uh, still to be employed as police officers and given in the name of the public uh, a badge and a gun to enforce the law. And, you know, you can see, and you're laying this out very clearly, how this touches all areas of the, basically, the, the large pie that is police reform. And there, there's something else here that I want to talk about that was meant to address a lot of this, and that was I-940. So I-940 was a voter initiative that was passed in 2018, and it was, you know, it, it required, among other things, uh, de-escalation training, independent investigations of killings by police, um, but and yet, we know many cases of noncompliance, right? No, most notably with the shooting of Manuel Ellis uh, when he was in custody of Tacoma police. So my question, I, and I would love to hear uh, the, each of you um, uh, have something to say about this. How can we improve implementation throughout the state of a law like this that is meant to address a, a lot of this? And then how can we make sure, and I think in my mind this is most important, how can we make sure that this law is enforced? Uh, Representative Anneman, can we start with you on this? Thank you. I would like to say that I-940, what we have learned uh, is just a beginning. There is only one police officer that has been brought uh, up on charges based on what we have learned from I-940 and we are watching that or we will watch that play out in Auburn to see what really happens. But I think what we have learned from I-940 is that we need more and one of the bills that I am proposing isn't and that I am supporting through community. The governor had a task force on independent investigations and community members have asked me to bring this bill. And the reason why is we think we need a better mechanism to hold police accountable. With I-940, we learned that there were many things that we thought, and I'm talking about we community who weren't in the legislature and who are not lawyers, um, thought would happen. And what we learned is, for example, um, the unfortunate death of um, Manny, excuse me, Emmanuel Ellis um, in Tacoma showed that although the police knew that I-940 was, the Tacoma police knew that I-940 was in effect, they still decided that they were going to investigate the death themselves instead of immediately turning it over. They did not do that. Um, why they didn't think that they needed to follow that rule, I still haven't had have a clear answer on. So if we have what I propose, 
which is an independent investigative, excuse me, investigative body, excuse me, I'm tired, um, then I think we will have a better chance of one, having transparency, two, following up with real evidence so that we can see what happened in the unfortunate incident and then have clarity so that an independent prosecutor, which I'm also proposing, can then determine whether or not charges need to be brought against the police officer. Can I just, so, as a, please continue. No, I was just no, going to ask ahead. as a quick follow-up. Uh, when you talk about an independent investigative body, how do you see that made up? Uh, who, who would comprise that body? So right now what we have, and, and the bill hasn't, again, as Representative Ty says, we are working on the bill. There is a proposal now for um, retired law enforcement for a matter of time to be a part of that excuse me, independent body um, it, that is time limited to give folks the opportunity to have more training to do investigations who aren't police officers. Um, members of the community who have worked on the task force understood that we need to change, excuse me, to train a body of people in these investigative procedures. And so we would use retired law enforcement or former law enforcement officers. I believe it is a five-year term right now. Again, the uh, draft isn't finished. Um, we would use retired law enforcement officers for approximately five years and then move to a body of investigators that are not a part of law enforcement. The, the community that brought this bill included family members who had been who had lost their lives at the hands of police. And one of the things they want to, to ensure is that we don't have these relationships where prosecutors who usually work with police as a part of their investigation so they can build a case, they already have a relationship with the police. So it would be very hard for them to bring charges against someone who they may have worked with in the past or they may need to work with in the future. So we think that that independent prosecutorial body is also going to be important if we want true transparency um, and true investigations of what happens when police use deadly force. I just want to let everybody know who is watching. We are collecting your questions right now. It is my intention, and I don't know if I'm going to get there, to uh, turn over to audience questions here in either at 7.40 or at 7.45, but we will get to as many of them as we can. Uh, and thank you for continuing to add those into the chat bar. Uh, but I do want to give both uh, Representative Ty and Senator Peterson an opportunity to uh, maybe dovetail on, on some of the things that Representative Eneman has just said about uh, implementation and enforcement of I-940. Representative Ty, do you have any, any thoughts on this? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Representative Entement is, I can I just say I love her in public? <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> She's so collective and calm and, uh, and thoughtful. And I'm this bundled of uh, sort of like, yeah, this is the systemic problem. If anything, it's really showed us our systemic problem. We continue to use a system that we knew upholding the power that would not work for people of color, the marginalized community. And when I-940 passed, I mean, we all seen, seen these initiatives being put on the ballot, it's about community understanding, community knowledge, community 
educations and 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 look at after i after this initiative passed in the book people continue to be killed but look at our community right now there's there's still excuses given to people who deliberately kill other people so how do i feel about i940 i940 is the system that we want to change and if anything this is i940 is a mirror for us we need to look at i940 as a mirror and reflect upon our understanding of how this system will continue to advance in order to kill the people we do not want to hold power. That's how I, what I feel about I-940. With all that wonderful, beautiful language of negotiated language, of negotiated agreement, of negotiating where's the borders of what we can do while while the people who should provide protections for the publics are out there killing our people. That's how I feel. I'm going to take just a moment to let us all absorb um, what you've just said because your words were extraordinarily powerful and, and you're seeing that reflected in the, the, the comment bar. Um, Senator Peterson, do, do you have anything that you would, would care to add to that? Well, it's hard to follow, uh, but I guess I guess what I will say, um, you know, with the perspective of having served for 14 years, you know, I, I came into the legislature uh, to try to achieve uh, marriage equality for same-sex couples, and it was at a time when only the session before had we even agreed, finally after 30 years, that people shouldn't be able to be fired from their jobs in our state because they're LGBTQ. Um, in 2012, when I was chairing the House Judiciary Committee, um, <laughs> Sandy Hook happened, and you know we confronted a world in which, for since time immemorial, we had never even really tried to put any restrictions on the use of firearms uh, in the legislature. Um, you know there had been an a outcry from the public and an attempt in 1997 to put an initiative on the ballot um, to require licensing and training before someone could have a uh, could have a gun. And that initiative got crushed at the ballot and created an impression uh, among legislators that the public was solidly against any measures to uh, to restrict firearms. Um, you know, so I remember when folks came to us after Sandy Hook and said, you know, well, you've got to do something. I just thought, wow, uh, not sure what we can do, but we tried in the 2013 session. I was the prime sponsor of the bill that required universal background checks. And in 2013, we couldn't even get that out of the democratically controlled house, but we came close, closer than we ever have. And that started a process of dialogue between the people and the legislature about where the people really were faced with the reality of gun violence in our society. And, you know, it took a couple of successful initiatives and a lot of people power. Uh, but when the Democrats retook control of the Senate in 2018, and in every session since then, we have made substantial progress. 
on reducing gun violence and passing laws uh, to try to achieve that end. And I think we're at a similar place here where this issue has broken into the consciousness now of a majority of, certainly of the, the majorities in the House and the Senate. And I think we have a real opportunity. I-940 was very well-intentioned and it was, it, it undid a historically bad law that we had in our state that required actual malice before you could have, required prosecutors to prove that a police officer had actual malice uh, before you could have any criminal conviction. So that was an important and necessary step on the journey toward undoing these systems that continually produce racist outcomes and the uh, killing of black and brown people. Um, but it wasn't, the, it wasn't the end of the story. As with all of these other issues that I mentioned, this is gonna be an iterative process. I think we have a chance to make a giant leap forward in this session, but even with all of the stuff that we proposed, I have no doubt that there will be more work to do in 2022 and 2023. And I guess, you know, my commitment, I think that Representative Ty and Representative Antman share this, is that we're going to be in this until it gets done properly so that all people have confidence that they can be treated equally by our law enforcement. I'm just about to go into audience questions here, but I do just want to ask you a specific question about something that you're already alluding to. Um, your committee has been so instrumental uh, and on much of the, the progress on gun safety that we've seen over the last few sessions. As you mentioned, you were the first person to introduce uh, universal background checks back in 2013. Uh, your committee has uh, been responsible for helping ban bump stocks, expanding ERPOs, um, keeping guns out of the hands of domestic abusers, on and on and on. So uh, you're the right person to ask this question to. What do you see as possible on this front in the next session? And, and I don't want to lead you too much, but I do know that there's a lot of talk about assault weapons, high-capacity magazines. W what are your thoughts generally? I think we have an opportunity to do a few things in the area of, of gun res responsible gun ownership, as we've learned to talk about it. Um, one is I think we have a real opportunity to ban high capacity magazines. Um, and I will say I, I'm, I'm, I will miss uh, Senator Taco. I know that my house colleagues will miss Representative Blake, um, <laughs> but for all the things that they were great on, uh, it, it will make it easier to, to do good work on gun issues, not to have them in our caucuses. Mm. Um, and uh, I think that there is a, I think we now have majorities that will be able uh, quickly to advance uh, those policies, or at least you know have a, have a good discussion about them. So <clears throat> um, banning high capacity magazines, which frankly just have no place in civilized society, is a real possibility. I think the protests over the summer and the, you know, frankly, differential treatment that we had between the Black Lives Matter protests and the people who were protesting masks or, you know, restrictions by the governor and armed and whatever have, have really brought to light um, how, um, how chilling it can be for a lot of people to try to exercise their freedom of assembly if you've got other people in the same space who are engaging in open carry. So I think another, uh, and we've witnessed this ourselves in the Capitol with people trying to get into the galleries or coming into hearing rooms, uh, you know, carrying weapons, um, essentially threatening. So, um, so anyway, I, I think that there's an, there is also the possibility 
that we have of putting some restrictions on when people uh, can brandish weapons essentially um, in a way that feels threatening for other for other folks. Let's go ahead and turn this over to audience questions. I'm going to try to get to as many as we can because we've gotten so many, not just the ones that we are getting tonight, but uh, ones that we have received ahead of time. Uh, they kind of run the gamut. Uh, let's start with this one. Uh, somebody asks about the Northwest Detention Center. And uh, Representative Ty, you were a co-sponsor on a bill, 2576, to shut down the NWDC do you know if this bill will be reintroduced and what are its chances, they ask? And I will just mention a story that just broke in the Seattle Times that the facility is revealed to hold uh, people in solitary confinement longer than any other ICE facility in the United States. So will you be reintroducing that bill, Representative Ty? Uh, thank you for the questions. We continue to work um, until those detentions um, are, are gone. Um, and, and thank you for, for elevating that. Uh, we are working at both state and federal level um, on this very specific issues. Um, at state, certainly the legislation will be reintroduced. At the same time, we are unsure whether it will be heard um, because have you heard that we, uh, for these sessions, <laughs> Um, we may not be able to hear and pass as many bills as we had in the past. Um, at least I can speak to the House side. We are clearly articulating our top priority, uh, certainly the budget in, in our mind. I believe you have uh, interviewed uh, Senator Joe Nguyen, um, and the, um, the intent is that we will not, we will not cut any services, we will uh, restructure our revenue. Uh, and that's what we will do. So that certainly will be our, one of our top priorities. The second one is certainly police accountability policies as, as our topic of discuss, discussion tonight. And the third piece is about equity. And we all know that equity has been co-opted by so many different uh, uh, group of people, and um, I'm not going to go too deep into that. Uh, but but the, the the topic you just mentioned certainly is in um, in in the the space of our government um, um, profiled certain group of people and then detained them and kept them there without due process. Yeah. And as you mentioned, they kept people in there without due process for the longest time. In fact, one of my community member, and her name is Dian Ho, um, American of uh, uh, Vietnamese heritage, has been held in that detention center more than three years mm. without due process. And, 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 and I, I don't know, maybe some of you have heard the cost of just simply making a phone call to her child is so difficult to hear. So we are working at state level. I am actively reaching out to uh, Congresswoman Jayapal um, and asking her as the chair of Progressive Caucus um, at the federal level to actively advocate for the new Biden administration in his first 100 um, days to um, to make sure whether the executive order is to put a moratorium to all the deportation, all of it, uh, because this is not only inhumane, 
it is violating human rights. And so, um, so that is what I am committed to doing. If we cannot get the state to go forward faster than the federal level, um, we, we, I, I mean, I, I will knock on all doors and windows to get these things resolved. I appreciate all that you have just said, and I. This was something that I probably should have front-ended our discussion with. Is that even though this is a 105-day session, it's going to be happening uh, online almost exclusively, and that's going to limit the amount of legislation that can be introduced. It's going to limit the amount of legislation that can be passed. And so, everybody watching, whether you know this or not, you may want to begin to think about uh, the what is, I guess, the art of, of of the possible in terms of what can be passed this year given those, those circumstances. We have a question from Sarah Franklin, um, and she asks, the, the police reforms being discussed all tweak the current police, police system, but the system is built on a foundation of white supremacy. How do we fundamentally fix this broken system? Isn't more dramatic and imaginative reform necessary? Um, Representative Eneman, would you, would you like to take that? First of all, I want to thank Miss um, Franklin for asking the question, yes, we do need more dramatic legislation. We have 60, six zero bills that we have talked about in our police and policy committee, 60 bills. Um, you have heard only about a few today. Um, we know that there is a lot of work to be done. I like to think of it as short-term, medium-term and long-term goals. Whether um, we are, whether I remain in the legislature or don't get reelected. Police reform is what I am going to do, um, whether as a legislator or outside of the legislature. So we have goals. I keep on trying to make people understand that we have had 400 years of institutionalized racism. One session is not going to undo that. And it is unfair for people to expect us to be able to do that in one session. I would like to say we have a record number of African-American people in our state legislature as we start up in January. We will have 10 people who identify as African-American representing many different communities uh, throughout the state. And I look forward to us getting to work together. But again, one session cannot undo all of the institutionalized racism in the police department that has occurred in since the creation of a police department in Washington state. We have 60 bills. We want to run them all. That is not going to happen in a COVID remote legislative session. Yeah, unfortunately, as I was saying earlier, we, we need to moderate our expectations of this, but that doesn't mean that the fight doesn't continue uh, on into the next sessions uh, when ideally COVID is behind us. Um, and also our awareness uh, grows over time. Um, Maria asks, what are you doing to reach out to black organizers and black community uh, leaders to ensure that their voices are prioritized when creating police reform policy? Um but Senator Peterson, I, it doesn't say who to direct this to, but I'm inclined to uh, direct this to you because it is my understanding the leadership team has incorporated some of this. And I'm wondering if the Law and Justice uh, uh, Committee has done any of this work. Uh, well, sure. We have tried to be um, as deliberate as possible about including community voices and voices of families and centering our work around them so far. 
So in the work session, for example, that we did in the Law and Justice Committee in October on these issues, um, the first hour was devoted to the members of the Coalition for Police Accountability and the stories of families who had been affected. Um, we have, I think, we're open to open to all comers. Uh, I've spent time with the Federal Way Black Collective and just today met with Black Lives uh, Matter Seattle King County uh, to talk to them about this work. I think um, we are, and then of course we have the wonderful benefit. We're, we have not been as blessed as the house has, but we finally have, uh, after a lot of work by a lot of people uh, during this interim, we finally have an African-American member Twana. in the Senate. Twana Nobles. Uh, Twana is, um, she's gonna do great things, but it, we're, we're very lucky, very happy to have her voice uh, in these discussions, I think that that's going to make a big difference uh, in ongoing um, work and ongoing awareness for the rest of us about the uh, challenges that communities face. Um, so I, you know, I agree with Representative Entman as I was implying before. I think this is a this is a multi-year uh, struggle for us. There's uh, there's no way that we're going to there's no way that we're going to be able to do everything. Um, we also need to bring the public along, and this is an iterative process uh, as we help people understand that um, the kinds of reforms that we're talking about are going to make everyone safer uh, and improve the community, improve the community for everyone. I guess the last thing that I just want to mention to this point is that, um, you know, for better or worse, the police department, I, I had lots of constituents write to me about how we needed to defund the police. And depending on how snippy I was feeling at any particular moment, I might say, well, we'll keep the budget at zero um, because basically we don't fund the police at the state level. These decisions are made at the local level uh, by local city councils, local county councils about how they wanna fund their police and sheriffs. So we're setting standards for certification, training, um, decertification, uh, you know, sort of general laws governing conduct of police officers, but the decisions about how police departments operate, which things, you know, where where the 911 uh, calls go, those are all decisions that are made at the local level. And we have a, a balance to strike here between, um, you know, making sure that they're, that the kinds of bad results that we um, that we don't want to see, uh, get stopped. And on the other hand, um, you know, making too much, uh, moving too much decision-making authority to Olympia and away from communities. And I, you know, I, I guess I say this every once in a while to people who uh, suggest that, that we're going to do it better in Olympia than they might do it at the Seattle City Council. Guess what? I, I don't know that I want Mike Patton or uh, Matt Shea uh, involved in the decision of how policing is done in the city of Seattle. I trust our local democratic process to come up with a uh, with better answers over time. I think that the point is to shine a spotlight on that and make people think about it. And then I think 
uh, the democratic process will lead to good results. Well, you know, I appreciate you saying all that because it actually was something that I meant to uh, kind of query on early on, which was to talk about the dynamic between the federal, the state, the municipal in addressing this sort of problem. So I appreciate you breaking it down in that way. We have a question um, from Sylvia Hammond who wants to know, uh, in eastern Washington, many Democrats hunt. How does gun law reform address guns used in sporting slash hunting? Uh, Senator Peterson, this is a question for you. Uh, well, this is one of the <laughs> this is one of the great problems that we wrestle with um, because there, I think, people in urban communities like the district that I represent don't always have a good appreciation for how important. Um, hunting or sports shooting is to people across wide swaths of the state and how passionate uh, folks are about that. So, you know, to the question about assault weapons, for example, one person's assault weapon is another person's hunting rifle. Um, and it is, you know, we have a fundamental choice to make in legislation that would quote unquote ban assault or weapons and where you put quotes. Um, you can do something that feels good um, and that actually isn't going to change very much, but that would ban some, uh, you know, charismatic megafauna. Um, or you can write a broad bill that captures a lot, but it probably will sweep in a lot of guns that people have and believe strongly that they have for legitimate purposes. Um, and if you do that, it, you know, it, you, might not like what you wake up in terms of uh, strong opposition. Um, so, you know, I, I for for the last three years as chair of the committee, I've I've had a gun bill day on MLK Day. Last year, we had two thousand people sign in, and that was having to come to Olympia in person for a ten a.m. hearing on a Monday. Um, I I am shuddering honestly to that. I'm grateful for the transparency and. Uh, openness that will come from having remote session. And I am simultaneously alarmed uh, by what will happen when we try to schedule controversial bills and the potential that folks who uh, don't have the votes on the floor or in the committees to stop bills uh, might mobilize to figure out how to stop the entire process uh, so that they can uh, prevent changes that they don't want to see. So um, I, I think it, you know, this, what's already a fraught and difficult conversation is going to become even more difficult in this completely novel approach to trying to do our work this next session. We have time for one last question, and this is about S SROs. Um, uh, Senator Peterson, uh, Representative Ty, you're both on education committees. Uh, this question asks, what can the legislature do about SROs in our schools? And I should say for people, these are school resource officers. They are often armed in schools. Uh, studies show, the question goes on to say, that BIPOC students and foster care students are negatively impacted by them, and that in particular, black boys' grades drop in schools with SROs. And I should just mention, actually, anecdotally, that when Superintendent Chris Rakedall was on this town hall, uh, he said, quote, I would love to get love for the legislature to pass a law preventing law enforcement officers from having guns in schools. So uh, can we do that? Uh, Representative Eneman, can we start with you? Any thoughts on this? I think that we should not have SROs in schools. I think it was a means to 
have um, more support for security or for school counselors. And I think that it is a complete bridge to the from the school to prison pipeline. If we have a school that doesn't have enough counselors, if we have a school that doesn't have enough support services for our students, there is no way that we should be spending any money on an SRO. They have work to do outside of a school. They have no work to do inside of a school if we are not spending monies on counselors. Representative Ty, um, I, I would love your, your thoughts on this as well uh, in your position on the education community, uh, committee in the House. Absolutely. And, and I think it's not only uh, on my positions um, in the House, there's several uh, sort of paths that, that sort of cross on this piece. Um, if you do know that SROs is now sitting in our Keep Washington Working legislation, do you know that? And that was the beginning of my frustrations of um, really putting a lot of effort um, to get SO out uh, of school. At the same time, here's the thing. Um, we have what we repeatedly heard and known in our heart, our system as a democratic system. What is a democratic system? The democratic system requires the people to come, and, to come with us. Um, with the movement of the east side, um, Bellevue School District, Issaquah School District, Lake Washington School District, Mercer Island School District, Renton School District, students came to us and asked us to please protect them by taking us all out. And when we did the survey to the adults, who has the power to vote, by the way, and again, I'm gonna put this as a mirror for each of us to reflect. I'm, 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 I'm not putting blame on anybody. This is us. This is us. We put SOO in school. We did. That was our reaction to school shooting. We have the power to take SOO out of school. We need to ask ourselves tonight, tomorrow morning, will you, each one of us in this Zoom, out there hearing this conversation, will you have a conversation with your, children, your, your child teacher? Will you ask your child teachers, how does SOO contribute to the safety of their classroom, of their students? Who Every single time we talk to them, they say they care so deeply and ask them, do they understand the impact to that black child, that brown child of a, a uniform officer on their school ground? Probably the only place they get fed, probably the only place they hope to find safety and probably the only place that they can find hope for their future. So I, my apology for seeming to, to fl keep flipping the, the questions of legislators, why aren't you doing something? Well, we promise you we do something, but we cannot do it without your help because guess what? More than 50% of teachers against taking us all out. 
how can how can superintendent how can principal making that when and and my apology i i don't know if if council uh, member zan is still in in this space and and again my apology to to our mayor uh, lynn robinson in in bellevue and i don't know what else other city has done these kids have met with them and the answer they get from the adults who committed to provide safety for them was no, we are sorry. This is for your safety while these students told them, no, it's not. So we have to ask ourselves, what have we done? Because the it wasn't, I don't know, was it the, 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 the uh, and to reiterate what Senator Peterson say, politics is local. Politics is local. The decision of putting SOO in school, the decisions of funding SOO is local. So the next time when you elect that school board director who have power and policy within the school district, ask the question. The next time you elect a council member who serve for your city, ask the question. The next time you elect a, a county council member, ask the question. And obviously you should ask us the question too, but the power is in your hand and how you use it. Representative Tai, I am uh, consistently uh, just blown away uh, by your eloquence, your passion. Thank you for that. We have just absolutely run up against the clock here. And so I would just ask each of you in closing, you know that you have an audience right now in front of you of very, very committed, uh, very passionate activists who want to help uh, pushes much legislation through on so many of the things that we have talked about here tonight. Uh, I would ask you how you would like to to, to work with us. How, how do you see interfacing best with the uh, with the, the the progressive activist community, uh, Senator Peterson? Can we start with you? Sure. Um, well, I think the first thing to say is we've got roughly five weeks until the session starts, and. Um, this is the time, not during session, but right now and in the months previous, that's the time when legislators are most accessible and most available. There is no substitute for a personal conversation, even if it's by Zoom, uh, with your three legislators who, whose job it is to represent you in Olympia. So make sure to reach out to us uh, and to ask for those conversations to convey why any of these issues is important to you. That is, that is something that everyone can do uh, right now and over the next few weeks. Uh, and having people who, constituents who care enough to raise, uh, to raise issues and to tell the stories why they're important is very powerful uh, as we go into doing our work. So I'd encourage people to start there. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time, Senator Peterson. Uh, greatly appreciated. Uh, Representative Ty, can we get some closing words from you on how you would like to work? And I, and I know because we met each other through Indivisible that you have uh, a deep familiarity with our community. Uh, what are your thoughts here on how you would like to see our community interface with you? Um, I think I say no, that I really cannot do my work without you. Um, everything I do have you in it. I'm not powerful simply because being myself, I'm powerful because of your power. And um, 
And another piece is that, and 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 when I say this, I th I think of Senator uh, Noble. Please remember when you elect a member of color into a space of power, everything fall on them. Um, support them, care for them. Um, once in a while, yes, I know there's so much things you want us to do for you, but please just send them a quick note and say, we are here for you. That's it. Because, because we converse, we, we meet, we, 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 we aligned in so much, but the, the piece that I, I, I see Representative Enterman nodding, um, you have no idea because Representative Enterman and myself and Representative uh, Melody Morgan, there was a group of us, member of color, who was elected the last um, cycle of election. We cry every night in during session. It was not only hard, the responsibility we carry, and it's also because we have no idea the system that was never allowed us in. We have to not only figure the system so that we can be successful for our people, but then we have to somehow fulfill the expectation of the white community. So I, I that would be my ask. Just drop a note for Senator Noble and told her, you have her back. Uh, I absolutely agree with that. And I will provide that for people who are listening on audio in the show notes as to how to get in touch with uh, our our brand new uh, Senator Twana Nobles. Um, Representative Enneman, I, I have saved you for last based on the conversation that you and I had this afternoon in preparation for tonight, um, because you, I think, we talked so much about the long-term nature of what we are doing here, and you spoke to the difficult conversations that Indivisible in particular, and I think the progressive community themselves are going to have to have. Um, I would love it if you could just maybe uh, share a few of those words that we spoke about uh, earlier today in closing. I think that... Um I would first like to thank Indivisible. My first election, I would not have won without Indivisible groups. I know that. Um, my second election, it was a little bit easier and I know we were all busy working to get new, new folks newly elected. And I look at the house and I see the hard work that we've all done. But this is going to be harder. To ask folks in Indivisible to be anti-racist is a lot harder than to ask us to get together and save the democracy. Because for some people, they don't see how this will benefit them. Being anti-racist will benefit everyone in this country, everyone in this state. And so we need to do that work now. I appreciate the fact that me, Lynn has asked that you send notes of congratulations and support to Senator Tawana Nobles because she's going to be in the Senate. And although we would like to be there with her, we will be across the aisle. Um, and she's going to need your support. But I would also ask that you send notes of encouragement to every member of color in our state legislature. This work is hard. This work gets even harder when we are challenging the status quo. It is going to be more important than ever because this is going to be harder than ever. We are going to ask people to make fundamental changes to a system of policing. 
And many of us know, especially those of us who live on the East Side, your relationship with police is very different than other people's relationship with police. It is very, very different. So what, what we want as um, Miss Ocasio-Cortez says, what we want out of policing is what you guys get out of policing, which is when we need you, you come. And when we don't need you, you leave us alone. So it is, this is going to be one of the most difficult things for a progressive organization to do. You Now you need to work on being anti-racist as we continue to do this work. And I'm asking you to do something that I have seen destroy other organizations. That is not my goal, but I, you need to be intentional about your work around anti-racism so that we can continue to move forward and have a diverse legislature and, and have a system that works for all of us, not just some of us. But I would like to say thank you for inviting me tonight. Um, I want my sister Milan to take care of herself and get some rest um, because we, we need you to be with us. And I know it's, it's a long day for me. I don't have any meetings before 10 o'clock tomorrow because I signed up for a seven o'clock meeting tonight. Um, so I just would like to say thank you. It was a wonderful opportunity and, and I hope to be able to speak with you again. My thank you again to Representative Deborah Antiman, Representative Meelan Ty, and Senator Jamie Peterson. Special thanks this week to Kevin Jones, Kirsten Hansen, MJ Carlson, Anil Afzali, Stephen Paolini, Sarah Franklin, and Marcy Maxwell. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julian Chievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. That is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at DemcastUSA.com. Special thanks to Lori Colwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.